part six of a journal of impressions in belgium by may sinclair this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine part six at the canteen the men are pouring out coffee from enormous enameled jugs into the small jugs that the waitresses bring this wastes your time and cools the coffee so you take a big jug from the men it seems to you no heavier than an ordinary teapot and you run with it to carry the largest possible jug at the swiftest possible pace is your only chance of keeping sane it isn't till it is all over that you hear the whisper of anglaise and realize how very far from sane you must have looked running round with your enormous jug you can fill up the coffee bowls again the little bowls full the big bowls only half full there is more than enough coffee to go around but there is no milk except for the babies and when they ask you for more bread there is not enough to go twice round the ration is now two slices of dry bread and a bowl of black coffee three times a day till yesterday there was an allowance of meat for soup at the midday meal today the army has commandeered all the meat but you needn't stand still any more after the first service the bowls have to be cleared from the tables and washed and laid ready for the next round the great wooden tube there is a frightful competition it is who can wash and dry and carry back the quickest you contend with brawny flemish women for the first dip into the tub and the driest towel then you race round the tables with your pile of crockery and then with your jug and so on over and over again for three hours till the last relay is fed and the tables are deserted you wash up again and it is all over for you till six o'clock tomorrow evening you go back to your mess-room and a ten o'clock supper of cold coffee and sandwiches and belgian currant loaf eaten with bread and in a nightmare afterwards belgian refugees gather round you and pluck at your sleeve and cry to you for more bread une petite tranche de pain s'il vous plaît mademoiselle wednesday the thirtieth no germans nor sign of germans yet fighting is reported at st nicolas between antwerp and ghent the commandant has an idea he says that if the belgian army has to meet the germans at st nicholas so as to cut off their advance on antwerp the base hospital must be removed from ghent to some centre or point which will bring the ambulance behind the belgian lines he thinks that working from ghent would necessarily bring it behind the german lines this is assuming that the germans coming up from the southeast will cut in between st nicholas and ghent he consults the president who apparently thinks that the base hospital will do very well where it is two thirty mrs torrance brought her colonel in to lunch he is battered and grizzled but still a fine figure in the dark green uniform of the motor cyclist corps he is very polite and gallant a la belge and vows that he has taken on mrs torrance pour toujours pour la vie she diverts the flow of urbanity adroitly except the colonel nothing noteworthy seems to have occurred to-day the three hours at the palais de fete were like the three hours last night thursday october first it really isn't safe for the commandant to go out with ursula dearmer for her luck in the matter of bombardments continues he might just as well be with mrs torrance they have been at termonde what is more it was ursula dearmer who got them through in spite of the medical military officer whose vigorous efforts stopped them at the border he seems at one point to have shown weakness and given them leave to go on a little way up the road 
and the little way seems to have carried them out of his sight and onward till they encountered the colonel or it may have been a general in command the colonel or the general seems to have broken down very badly for the car and ursula dearmer and the commandant went on towards termonde young haynes was with them this time and on the way they picked up mr g l war correspondent to the daily mail and westminster they left the car behind somewhere in a safe place where the fire from the machine guns couldn't reach it there is a street or a road i can't make out whether it is inside or outside the town it leads straight to the bridge over the river which is about as wide there as the thames at westminster the bridge is the key to the position it has been blown up and built again several times in the course of the war and the germans are now entrenched behind it the road had been raked by their mitrailleuses the day before it seems to have struck the four simultaneously that it would be quite a good thing to walk down this road on the off chance of the machine guns opening fire again the tale told by the commandant evokes an awful vision of them walking down it four abreast the commandant and mr g l on the outside fairly under shelter and ursula dearmer and young haynes a little in front of them down the middle where the fire comes when it does come this spectacle seems to have shaken the commandant in his view of bombarded towns as suitable places of amusement for young girls young haynes ought to have known better you tell him that as long as the world endures young haynes will be young haynes and if there is danger in the middle of the road it is there that he will walk by preference and as no young woman of modern times is going to let herself be outdone by young haynes you must expect to find ursula dearmer in the middle of the road too you cannot suppress this competitive heroism of young people the roots strike too deep down in human nature in the modern young man and woman competitive heroism has completely forgotten its origin and is now an end in itself and if it comes to that how about alost at the mention of alost the commandant's face becomes childlike again in its utter simplicity and innocence and candour alost was a very different thing looking for shells at alost you understand was like looking for shells on the seashore at alost ursula dearmer was in no sort of danger for at alost she was under the commandant's wing young haynes hasn't got any wings only legs to walk into the line of fire on he explains very carefully that he took her under his wing because she is a young girl and he feels responsible for her to her mother which oddly enough is just how i feel as for young haynes i suppose he would plead that when he and ursula dearmer walked down the middle of the road there was no firing that seems to have been young haynes's particular good fortune i have now a perfect obsession of responsibility i see in one dreadful vision after another the things that must happen to ursula dearmer under the commandant's wing and to young haynes and the commandant under ursula dearmer's no wounded were found this time at termonde this little contretemps with the commandant has made me forget to record a far more notable event mrs torrance brought young lieutenant g in to luncheon he is the hero of the belgian motor cyclist corps he is said to have accounted for nine germans with his own rifle in one morning the corps has already intimated that this is the first well-defined specimen of a man it has yet seen in belgium his dark green uniform fits him exceedingly well he is tall and handsome drenched in the glamour of the greatest possible danger he gives it off like a subtle essence 
as he was led in he had rather the air the slightly awkward puzzled and embarrassed air of being on show as a fine specimen of a man but it very soon wore off in the absence of the commandant he sat in the commandant's place so magnificent a figure that our mess with gaps at every table looked like a banquet given in his honour a banquet whose guests had been decimated by some catastrophe suddenly whether it was the presence of the lieutenant or the absence of the commandant or merely reaction from the strain of inactivity i don't know but suddenly madness came upon our mess the mess-room was no longer a mess-room in a military hospital but a british schoolroom mrs torrance had changed her woollen cap for a grey felt wide-awake she was no longer an arctic explorer but the wild western cowboy of british melodrama she was the first to go mad one moment she was seated decorously at the lieutenant's right hand the next she was strolling round the tables with an air of innocent abstraction having armed herself in secret with the little hard round rolls supplied by order of the commandant each little roll became a deadly obus in her hand she turned her innocent abstraction was intense as she poised herself to aim with a shout of laughter dr bird ducked behind the cover of his table napkin i had a sudden memory of mrs torrance in command of the party at ostend a figure of austere duty of inexorable propriety rigid with the discipline of the blank hospital restraining the criminal levity of the red cross volunteer who would look or dream of looking at ostend cathedral mrs torrance like a seven-year-old child meditating mischief like a baby panther at play like a very young and very engaging demon let loose is looking at dr bird he is not a cathedral but he suffered bombardment all the same she got his range with a roll she landed her shell in the very centre of his waistcoat her madness entered into dr bird he replied with a spirited fire which fell wide of her and battered the mess-room door the orderlies retreated for shelter into the vestibule beyond jean was the first to penetrate the line of fire max followed him madness entered into max he ceased to be a hospital orderly he became prosper pan again the very young collegian as he put down his dishes and glided unobtrusively into the affair and then the young belgian lieutenant went mad but he gave way by degrees at first he sat up straight and stiff with polite astonishment before the spectacle of a british rag he paid the dubious tribute of a weak giggle to the bombardment of dr bird he was convulsed at the first performance of prosper pan in his final collapse he was rocking to and fro and crowing with helpless hysterical laughter for with the entrance of prosper pan the mess-room became a scene at the folies bergeres there was mrs torrance premier comedienne in the costume of a wild western cowboy there was the young lieutenant himself looking like a stage lieutenant in the dark green uniform of the belgian motorcyclist corps and there was prosper pan he began by picking up mrs torrance's brown leather motor-glove with its huge gauntlet and examining it with the deliciously foolish bewilderment of the accomplished clown after one or two failures brilliantly improvised he fixed it firmly on his head the huge gauntlet with its limp five fingers dangling over his left ear became a rakish kepi with a five-pointed flap max i mean prosper pan wore it with an air impiable out of his round soft putty-coloured face he made fifteen other faces in rapid succession all incomparably absurd 
he lit a cigarette and held it between his lower lip and his chin the effect was of a miraculous transformation of those figures in which his upper lip disappeared altogether his lower lip took on its functions while his chin ceased to be a chin and became a lower lip with this achievement prosper pan had his audience in the hollow of his hands he could do what he liked with it he did he caused his motor-glove cap to fall from his head as if by some mysterious movement of its own then he went round the stalls and gravely and earnestly removed all our hats with an air more and more impayable he wore each one of them in turn the grey felt wide-awake of the wild western cowboy the knitted jaeger headgear of the little arctic explorer the dark blue military cap with the red tassel assumed by dr bird even the green cap with a winged symbol of the young belgian officer by this time the young belgian officer was so entirely the thrall of prosper pan that he didn't turn a hair flushed with success max rose to his top notch moving slowly towards the open door centre with his back to his audience and his head turned towards it over his left shoulder by some extraordinary dislocation of his hip joints he achieved the immemorial salutation of the folie bergere the last faint survival of the old athenian comedy up till now jean had affected to ignore the performance of his colleague but under this supreme provocation he yielded to the aristophanic impulse and exit max in the approved manner of the folie bergere it is all over the young belgian officer has flown away on his motorcycle to pont germans mrs torrance has gone off to the field with the colonel on the quest of the greatest possible danger the ambulance has followed them there i am in the mess-room sitting at the disordered table and gazing at the ruins of our mess i hear again the wild laughter of the messmates it mingles with the cry of the refugees in the palais de fete a little piece of bread if you please mademoiselle c'est triste n'est-ce pas in the chair by the window max lies back with his loose boyish legs extended limply in front of him his round close-cropped head droops to his shoulder his round face the face of a very young collegian is white the features are blurred and inert max is asleep with his dishcloth in his hand in the sudden pathetic sleep of exhaustion after his brief funny madness he is asleep jean comes and looks at him and shakes his head you understand from jean that max goes mad like that now and then on purpose so that he may forget in what manner his mother went mad we go quietly so as not to wake him a minute too soon lest when he wakes he should remember there is a taube hovering over ghent up there in the clear blue sky it looks innocent like an enormous greyish blonde dragonfly hovering over a pond you stare at it fascinated as you stare at a hawk that hangs in mid-air steadied by the vibration of its wings watching its prey you are not in the least disturbed by the watching taube an aeroplane dropping a few bombs is nothing to what goes on down there where the ambulances are the ambulances have come back i go out into the yard to look at them they are not always nice to look at the floors and steps would make you shudder if you were not past shuddering i have found something to do not much but still something i am to look after the linen for the ambulances to take away the blood-stained pillow slips and blankets and deliver them at the laundry and get clean ones from the linen room it's odd but i'm almost foolishly elated at being allowed to do this we are still more or less weighed down by the sense of our uselessness 
even the chaplain though his services as a stretcher-bearer have been definitely recognized even the chaplain continues to suffer in this way he has just come to me to tell me with pride that he is making a good job of the stretchers he has got to mend then just as i am beginning to lift up my head the blow falls not one member of the field ambulance corps is to be allowed to work at the palais de fete for fear of bringing fever into the military hospital and here we are exactly where we were at the beginning of the week mrs lambert janet mcneil and i three women out of five with nothing to do and two convalescent orderlies waiting on us if i could please myself i would tuck max up in bed and wait on him in spite of the ambulance linen this is the worst day of all for the wretched secretary and reporter five days in ghent and not a thing done not a line written of those brilliant articles from the front which were to bring in money for the corps to have nothing to do but hang about the hospital on the off chance of the commandant coming back unexpectedly and wanting a letter written to pass the man with a bullet wound in his mouth a dozen times a day he is getting very slowly better his poor face was a little more human this morning to see the maimed and crippled men trailing and hobbling about the hall and the wounded carried in on their stretchers dripping stretchers agonized bodies limbs rolled in bandages blood oozing through the bandages heads bound with bandages bandages glued tight to the bone with blood to see all this and be utterly powerless to help to endure day after day the blank blonde horror of the empty mess-room to sit before a marble-topped table with a bad pen never enough paper and hardly any ink and nothing at all to write about while all the time the names of places places you have not seen and never will see termond alast quatrecht and courtral go on sounding in your brain with a maddening luring reiteration to sit in a hateful inactivity and a disgusting and intolerable safety and to be haunted by a vision of two figures intensely clear on a somewhat vague background mrs torrance following her star of the greatest possible danger and ursula dearmer wandering in youth and innocent among the shells to be obliged to think of ursula dearmer's mother when you would much rather not think of her to be profoundly and irrevocably angry with a guileless commandant whom at the moment you regard it may be perversely as the prime agent in this fatuous sacrifice of women's lives to want to stop it and to be unable to stop it and at the same time to feel a brute because you want to stop it when they are enjoying the adventure i can only say of the experience that i hope there is no depth of futility deeper than this to come you might as well be taken prisoner by the germans better since that would at least give you something to write about afterwards what's more i'm bored when i told the commandant all this he looks very straight at me and said then you'd better come with us to termond so straight he looked that the suggestion struck me less as a bona fide offer than an ironic reference to my five weeks funk i don't tell him that that is precisely what i want to do that his wretched reporter nourishes an insane ambition not to become a special correspondent not to career under massive headlines in the columns of the daily mail not to steal a march on other war correspondents and secure the one glorious scoop of the campaign not any of these sickly and insignificant things but in defiance of tom the chauffeur to go out with the field ambulance as an ambulancier and hunt for wounded men and in the intervals of hunting to observe the orbit of a shell and the manner of shrapnel in descending 
to be left behind every day in an empty mess-room with a bad pen utterly deprived of copy or of any substitute for copy and to have to construct war articles out of your inner consciousness would be purgatory for a journalist but to have a mad dream in your soul and a pair of breeches in your hold-all and to see no possibility of sporting either is the very refinement of hell and your tortures will be unbearable if at the same time you have to hold your tongue about them and pretend that you are a genuine reporter and that all you want is copy and your utmost aim the business of the scoop after a week of it you will not be likely to look with crystal clarity on other people's lapses from precaution but it would be absurd to tell him this ten to one he wouldn't believe it he thinks i am funking all the time i am still very angry with him he must know that i am very angry i think that somewhere inside him he is rather angry too all the same he has come to me and asked me to give him my soap he says max has taken his i give him my soap but these oppressions and obsessions the deadly anxiety the futile responsibility and the boredom are too much for me i am thinking seriously of going home end of part six Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.